Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. It's a short passage. Mark 10, 13 to 16. And I'll ask if you're able to do so that you stand for the reading of God's holy word. Give you to the reading of God's word this morning. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children, or let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark to grope around to try to find you, but you have revealed yourself in your word and in your gospel. We pray that you might work on us by your spirit even today. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, every first Sunday, we go through the Psalms together. Uh, but the previous two Sundays to that, uh, the end of, of Mark 9 and the beginning of Mark chapter 10, we dealt with a couple uh, somewhat difficult subjects, to say the least. We looked, we looked at what Jesus preached about hell in the end of, of chapter uh, 9 of Mark's Gospel. And then the first 12 verses of of this chapter, we talked about marriage and divorce. Jesus taught about those two things. And, and so, especially after talking about marriage and divorce, it's fitting, I think, that in some ways the very next subject that comes up has to do with children. The subject of, of children that Jesus turns our attention to. And now, I have to admit that when I first saw the passage we were going to be looking at today and started preparing to preach on it, uh, I felt somewhat a, uh, maybe a premature kind of, of sense of relief at not having to deal with another difficult, uh, at least obviously difficult subject or, or, or passage. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more it kind of started to dawn a little slow, but it started to dawn on me that this isn't exactly an easy subject either. On the surface, it looks like it. You're not talking about hell directly. You're not talking about divorce and things like that. But uh, the subject of, of children, in a lot of ways, uh, can be uh, difficult in its own way for us uh, to look at from what the scripture says about it. And the reason I say that is maybe some of you are already nodding your heads and know exactly where I'm going with this. But, you know, we all we all fail and fall short in many things. uh, But our shortcomings as parents, at least for our consciences, I think, outweighs a lot of those things. You know, we, you know, you can you can make uh, believers, Christians, feel guilty pretty easily about a, a small handful of subjects, right? If I were to say, uh, if I want to make you feel bad, I hope this isn't the case, but the first thing I should ask you is, you know, hey, how's your prayer life, right? Oh, you know, most of us don't go fantastic. I pray so much, Becky just interrupted me. I was praying, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't we know the Bible says what? Pray without ceasing, give thanks without ceasing, and yet. We kind of don't, and we know we don't. Even on our best days, we don't. Um, you know, how's your time studying the Bible? Oh, you know, head drops again. Well, uh, it doesn't take much for your head to kind of droop 
if I say, you know, how, how are you doing in teaching your children? How are you doing in, in helping raise your grandchildren in the faith? That kind of a thing. We, we all tend to think about our failures. At least I know I do. You probably do in some ways uh, as well. And so this text isn't exactly as easy as I, I thought it was going to be when I first started, started studying for it. You know, what, what parent among us, what grandparent among us can honestly say that he or she feels no remorse, no regret, no burden of our faults as a parent or even a grandparent? How many of us can say that we have prayed for and with our children enough or that we've read the scriptures and taught them to them enough or modeled faith and love in Christ for them well enough? Um, parenthood, I'm finding out, uh, I'm, I'm a rookie compared to most of you, but uh, parenthood and grandparenthood, if that's even a word, is a humbling thing. Uh, if parenthood doesn't get you on your knees praying, nothing will. I think I, I can say that with, uh, without fear of contradiction. Well, here, here our Lord Christ has a lot to say to us about what our attitudes should be towards children, both as individuals and families and as a church family. Uh, here in these verses, this short passage, uh, we see and we should carefully take note and examine uh, our own attitudes uh, in looking at the attitudes of the disciples themselves towards these children that were being brought to Jesus uh, and if we look at this passage as we look at it, I think we ought to examine ourselves to see if similar hurtful ways, similar sinful mindsets and attitudes might be found in us as well. If, if Think about this. Is if such a sinful attitude towards children could be found among the twelve, uh, none of us can say that we're immune, that we are above whatever this uh, sinful attitude was. The disciples themselves had it. Uh, we are certainly not, uh, shouldn't think of ourselves as being naturally above some of these same things. Not only that, but Jesus tells us uh, something that we should take to heart as well about our own selves, and that not only should we be careful of how we think of, of, of our children and the children in general uh, in the church, but uh, he says that, that the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to receive it like a child. Is to receive it like a child. So we're not just called... You know, we are called to emulate the love of, of the Savior for children, but we're also, in a sense, called to emulate the children themselves, in a way, aren't we? It's, it's both. Both of those things come out in our, in our text. We are to emulate the faith of a child, even, as well as Christ's love for them that our text uh, would tell us about. And the last thing that we should take note of about our own Attitude is we should take a look at Jesus' own attitude toward the littlest, the smallest of children, for his attitude toward them and his willingness to bless them has not changed. It's always one of those things we have to keep in mind. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is what? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we see in these, te in these pages, these verses, uh, we should see as not something that Jesus used to be like, but as he continues to be, his perspective, his love for children, the littlest ones among us, has not, has not changed. Our risen and ascended Savior still loves the little children. He's no doubt also still angered or indignant when someone hinders them from coming to him. And he still is, is more than happy to bless the little ones, even from their youngest of ages. We're going to look at at least three things, probably more, but at least three things from our text. The first... Um, is hindering or blocking the little children. Try to make our, our outline with the same letter to start off with to make it easier to remember, but blocking the little children or hindering them. The second one is becoming like them, becoming like little children 
And third, and lastly, blessing, blessing the little children. So the first thing is blocking or hindering the little children. And from an unexpected source, the disciples, the twelve, right? In verse 13, Mark says, and they, it doesn't say who they were, but they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now they is obviously probably mostly the parents, fathers and mothers of the children. And, and the word for children here in our text uh, that he uses twice, it, it often conveys, it doesn't only mean a little one, but it very often conveys the idea of a small child, even of a baby, an infant. It's, it's a broader term. It's not that, that specific, but in, there's a couple parallel passages. And the one in Luke's gospel in chapter 18, Luke actually uses a, the specific word for babies. So in Luke's text, the emphasis is on the tiniest of the, of the little ones, not just, uh, not just toddlers. So uh, the fact that, that babies are most certainly involved here and maybe the main, the main emphasis should tell us a lot about what this passage is trying to, to teach us. The word for bringing here, when it says that they were bringing the children to him, it can actually have the connotation of carrying of actually carrying them to Jesus. And that is probably mostly what's going on here in our text. And so these, these children that were being brought to Christ to, to be touched and blessed and prayed for, uh, they were most likely, most of them, if not all of them, were very young. And certainly there were a number of, uh, of babies and toddlers among, among this group. And why, why were the parents bringing these babies and toddlers, little ones, to, to Jesus? Mark says, what, in verse 13, that he might touch them. That he might that he might touch them. Uh, the fact that at the end of our little passage, what does Jesus do? He takes them up in his arms or embraces them. He picks them up. He holds them. Tells us something of what what the parents were hoping for. And what else does he do when he picks them up? He blesses them. And I don't think it's. I think we're supposed to draw a line from one to the other. That's what they were bringing their children to him to him for. In Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 19, he adds this detail. He says the children, quote, uh, were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. So you can see what these parents were bringing their, their children, their little ones to him for. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You know, it's, it's a beautiful picture of, 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 of both the parents' desire to bring their children to Jesus, which we should certainly emulate that even though not physically. We don't physically bring them to him as they did. And it's a picture, a beautiful picture of Christ's love. If you, if you listen to the, uh, the offertory, uh, Mary prayed, played rather the, uh, the song that we, I stole the title for the sermon from, Jesus Loves the Little Children. You know, he certainly did and certainly does. But it's a beautiful picture until the disciples come along and ruin the party and burst everybody's bubble. You know, now why did they do that? It's easy for us to wag our finger at the disciples, and it's not so easy to look in the mirror and say, okay, you know, there's probably some, I'm somewhere in this, this uh, story too, and I'm probably not, not the parents. I'm probably more like the disciples than I care to admit. Now think about, you know, a few weeks ago I, I, I mentioned that we're in a section of Mark's gospel where it's starting to pick up. You know, Mark, if you know the book of Mark at all, you know that his, his favorite word is immediately. Everything is in a hurry. Mark's gospel is a gospel of action. It's always about what Jesus is doing. It's always going here and then immediately going somewhere else and doing something else. He, he doesn't often focus on Jesus' actual teaching. He'll, he'll summarize it, but he doesn't usually give us large sections of Jesus' teaching, the content. 
He usually just tells us Jesus taught them, you know, or, or Jesus was healing and casting out demons, things like that. But in this, in this last uh, section, really, really the last half of the book, Jesus is now making a beeline to Jerusalem. If he was in a hurry before, according to the way Mark wrote, he's really in a hurry now. He's going towards Jerusalem, which means he's going towards the cross. And he knows that's where he's going. If you, if you read through the last uh, two chapters and then on to chapter 10, you'll notice Mark gives these little geographical uh, hints. He's going here, he's going here, he's going here. He's closing in on Jerusalem. He's in Judea even, even now. But Jesus takes the time now to stop. And the disciples are probably saying to themselves, he needs a break. You know, he's got more important things to do than to deal with a bunch of little ones. And so they stop and it says they rebuked. They rebuked these parents, these people that were bringing these, these little ones to Jesus. It's a harsh word. It's not like they, you know, we, we, we act like we wouldn't do that. You know, we, we might be more diplomatic about it and say, hey, you know, he's had a long day. They rebuked them. Like, don't, don't do that. Why are you bringing these little ones to Jesus? And why else might they be doing that? You know, when, when you think about Jesus, everywhere he stops, he's teaching people. And you can maybe kind of read, read between the lines and see the disciples thinking to themselves, you know, what, what good is he going to do? He can't teach this one. This one doesn't understand anything he's going to say. So, what, so what's the point? Why waste his time is what they probably thought. Wait until they're older and then bring them and then he can teach them and they can understand what, what he's saying. And so they rebuke these people for bringing these little ones, even the babies, to to Jesus and what was Jesus' reaction how did Jesus respond when he saw what they were doing what do you think the disciples expected him to say or what, what do you think they thought his reaction was going to be did they think were they expecting thanks guys you saved me with that one I dodged a bullet you know good job good job good job Peter James John everybody else I'm glad you guys caught that that was a close one I almost had to come in contact with with little ones you know, kind of, kind of a thing. No, it says, Mark says in verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Let me use a different word for that. He was angry. We're, that makes us uncomfortable, right? Jesus being angry. Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus got angry. Indignant sounds more righteous, right? It sounds more, more uh, like a safer word. Now, Righteous anger, righteous indignation, whatever you want to want to call it, that's what this was. Now remember, anger in and of itself is not sinful. Anger in and of itself is not a sinful emotion to feel. In fact, sometimes it is the proper emotion to feel. There is a time and a place for righteous anger, not unrighteous anger, not wrath, uh, but anger itself is not a sin. Psalm 4 verse 4 says, "Be angry and do not sin." And it doesn't say, we, we tend to tone it down and, and kind of smooth it out. And I think some, one translation, I believe, says, in your anger, do not sin. It's, it's actually an imperative. It's, it's an odd imperative. Be angry. We like that one. I like that one. Us Presbyterians probably like that one more than most. Be angry. I can do that one. This, all this I've kept since my youth. I've been angry all the time. I'm an angry young man. But it says, be angry and do not sin. So you can be angry without it being a sinful Reaction and why? Why was Jesus angry? Of all the things that could get him riled up, why this? What was it about this particular thing? His disciples were hindering the children. That's what it says in verse 14. It says he tells them, 
let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Or really, it could be stop hindering them. Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, what did the disciples think? They thought the children would hinder Jesus, that they would be in his way, that they would be an inconvenience to him. Who was the one that was the hindrance? It wasn't the little ones at all. It was the disciples. It was the disciples that were hindering and being in the way. So Jesus tells them, let them come. Get out of the way. Stop hindering them. They weren't a burden to him. They were something. They were people he wanted to see and to bless. And notice, notice something else he doesn't say. You know, it's, sometimes it's, it's easy to, to kind of miss what he's saying. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, you know, let them come to me because one day the kingdom will belong to them. He's not saying, hey, don't stop them because someday way down in the future the kingdom will belong to them. He's, he's saying now the kingdom of God, it belongs to them. To such belongs, present tense, right now, belongs the kingdom of of God. Little children, even infants, were not an unwelcome interruption to the business of, of Christ's kingdom. In fact, they were a part of it. And he welcomed them. That should be instructive to us. Now that that's no doubt why so many down through the years of church history have seen uh, to some of us it may seem strange, it seems strange to me for a time, that this text they have seen a strong connection between this passage and something that isn't mentioned in the text at all. And that's the, the, the subject of, of infant baptism. John Calvin himself saw a warrant for that practice in this text. Now, John Calvin's as good an exegete of scripture as you'll ever find. And he, of course, the word is not found in the text. That Jesus, nowhere in the text, nowhere in the Bible, frankly, does Jesus say, Bring, your, children, bring your, your babies to be baptized. doesn't say it at all, but John Calvin saw a warrant for it in this text. And why, why did he say that? Why did he see that in this text? Why do so many see that in this text? It's because of what we just said. If the kingdom of God even belongs to babies, that's what he says in the text. It, it belongs to them now. And if that's the case, what right do we have to withhold the sign and seal of the covenant of that kingdom from them? That's the logic. That's part of the logic of, of infant baptism. J.C. Ryle, great Anglican writer of years past, he wrote this. He said, of course, it is not pretended that there is any mention of baptism or even any reference to it in the verses before us. All we mean to say is that the expressions and gestures of our Lord in this passage are a strong indirect, indirect argument in favor of infant baptism. It is on this account that this passage occupies a prominent place in the baptismal service of the Church of England. They would quote this text. You know, you could think of all kinds of other texts that you would you would bring up. They quoted this one in their in their baptismal service. Now getting back to just the general idea of hindering children, I think when we read this text we have to stop, we should stop and, and ask ourselves not just are other people hindering the children, but is there some way that we might be hindering children as well from coming uh, to Christ and we may not be neglecting our children hopefully in an obvious kind of way we may center our entire family life around our children that's a very common thing in our day we might be centering our whole calendar around their activities shuttling them to and from their various events and things our whole lives might be wrapped up in our kids 
And yet we still might be hindering them in some way from coming to Christ to be blessed by him. And I can think of just a, a few examples. May, may or may not apply to anybody here, but how common is it in our, in our day? We see it actually from our location on a regular basis being where we are here in this, this building. How often do we see various children's sports leagues holding games and scheduling tournaments on the Lord's Day? How many children never get to set foot in a church because they're too busy playing organized sports on the Sabbath? You think six days might be enough for our work and for our play. We must learn, uh, you know, it, learning is not a bad thing. Old dogs like us learning new tricks is not a bad thing. And we need to learn to give the Lord his day, as they say, to call the Lord's Sabbath a delight. And if we don't, our children never will either. If we don't learn to call the Lord's day our delight, we shouldn't expect our kids to learn it. As families and as a church family, do we include the children in the worship of the church on the Lord's Day, whenever possible. As families and as a church family, are we seeking to teach them the whole counsel of God? Just reading the Bible to them, as simple as that may be. Re reading the Bible with them, catechizing them, teaching them. Um, you know, very often, this, when you think of youth ministry, youth, you know, Sunday schools and things, Maybe you have a stereotype that comes to your mind. I won't, I won't drag it out, but it often seems like sanctified babysitting. It, if you, maybe you've been, uh, seen that kind of thing, been a part of that. And it's a sad thing to think about. When you think of your, of your children in junior high and high school, they're handling subjects that if you're, for instance, a homeschool parent, you probably already think to yourself, boy, when they get to calculus, I'm toast. I don't know what I'm going to do. They can handle some pretty complex things but we think they can't handle studying the deep things of God and of his gospel. That somehow those things are beyond their ability to comprehend, and it certainly is not, is not the case. So we should be careful that we're not the ones also hindering the little children. We might be more like those disciples at times than we even care to admit. And that brings us to the second thing in our text. You know, We're not just to block or hinder the little children. We're supposed to become like them in a way. We're supposed to not just hinder, not just not hinder them. We're supposed to become more, more like them. And think about that. Even like more like babies. Now that's a weird thing for a pastor to say. Usually, if you tell somebody stop being a baby, it's an insult, right? It's it's not a compliment. Well, Jesus here tells us in some way that if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, it has to be like those little ones. The same way as them. That in a sense, our salvation depends upon, in a sense, becoming more like little children. That, that doesn't sound... That's not an intuitive concept for any of us to, to think of. Verse 15, he says this, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall, and really, it's really, and shall no way or by no means enter it. It's a very emphatic, this whole, set, this whole sentence, this whole verse is very emphatic. Everything Jesus ever said was true, right? He doesn't need to say, truly, truly, I say to you, verily, I say to you. Uh, that's what he says. The word is actually amen. It sounds weird to us. It, you wouldn't translate it that way because it would sound odd. But he says, basically, I, amen, I say to you. It kind of grabs your attention. He's saying, he's basically, it's almost like he's swearing an oath, like, Everything I say is true. This is really true. Mark this down. Take note of this. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall by no means enter it. 
That's what he's saying. That, that should grab our, our attention. What does it mean to receive or enter the kingdom of God like a child? How does a child receive it? First thing, we should be clear as to what Jesus is not saying. Uh, he's not saying, be virtuous like little kids. He's not saying that little children are inherently sinless. That, that mommy and daddy's little angel, that's what you should be like because they're so angelic, they're so righteous and never, never possibly sin. If you've ever had a two-year-old, you know that's not, not the case. He's not saying that children are inherently good or righteous as much as we love them. They're just as sinful as anybody else. They don't actually have to learn how to sin. You ever figure that out? They magically learn how to lie somewhere along the line, even if it's not from an obvious example. Psalm 51.5 David himself teaches there that uh, we are all sinful from birth, even from conception. We are born in sin. It says there, Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not saying he was illegitimate or something. He's saying, I've been a sinner since literally day one. It's in my blood. It's It's in my spiritual DNA. I was born dead in sin to use the language of the New Testament. Children are sinners, even the smallest of us, just like the rest of us. They are just as much in need of the Savior as anyone else. We're all in the same boat, no matter what your age may be. What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, just just the way he words it is a pretty big hint. Receive it. To receive it. One writer puts it this way. To receive the kingdom of God as a child means to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. We don't have anything. We don't have a magic ticket. We don't have the right token. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough anything to earn it, deserve it, barter for it, swap it, purchase it, nothing. We have to receive it or not have it at all. We don't have any claim upon it. God's love in Christ is a gift It's a gift, and by definition, gifts are what? They're free, or they're not really a gift at all. You don't go to the mall and buy something and say, I got a gift. You paid for it, or maybe you stole it. You know, the the Jesus Storybook Bible has a great illustration about kids and grace. It says this, So while Jesus' friends were arguing, some people who knew all about getting gifts, in fact, you might say they were gift experts, had come to see Jesus. Who were they? They were, the, they were little children. They're gift experts. So you, I could say they're grace experts in some ways because they don't have any idea yet of, of earning or meriting or, or paying for things. You know, when's the last time you bought a gift for a small child and they kind of opened it? Maybe it's something they've been wanting. My, my kid, Ben, always says, I've always wanted that. It could, it could be something that just came out yesterday. And he's always wanted it, you know. But he, he'd, un, he'd unwrap it, you know. Little, you know, Christmas is fun because you get to watch the kids unwrap things. They unwrap something. Have you ever seen a small child unwrap a toy on Christmas and, and look at it? Maybe it's an expensive toy, something that you, know, you really had to sacrifice to get for them, and have them open it and say, "Oh, now I have to get Dad something like this." You know, now, they, they don't think of it that way. They don't think of it as, oh, now I have to, re- reciprocity, I have to give back something equal of value to the gift you gave. Why couldn't you get me something cheaper, Dad? No kid in human history has ever said that. Why did you have to get me such a good, 
a good gift. Now I have all the pressure on me and I have to give something back. Kids, you're lucky if you get a tie, right? If, if, you're, if you're a dad or a mom. Kids, kids get giving gifts. They, they get receiving gifts. The rest of us grown-ups, probably not so much. I think, I want to ask you to raise your hand. How often have you received a gift in, since you've become a grown-up and been, been, uh, been tainted now with, with grown-up ways? Have you gotten a gift and the first thing you thought was, oh, now I have to give something back. Now when it's their birthday, they're going to expect. Your mind starts doing the math. Kids don't, kids don't do that. Childlike faith receives gifts and recognizes them and enjoys them for what they are and doesn't have any thought of trying to earn them or pay back for them. Childlike faith trusts the Lord implicitly, looks up in faith and trusts the Lord. Childlike faith is unashamedly dependent upon the Lord for all things. You know, when you're a child, when you're, when you're little, when you come home and it's time for dinner, there's this weird thing where they actually expect food to be there. And, they, they, you know, kids, we don't come home and, oh, well, there's no dinner. Well, why, why would I have dinner on the table? They expect it. They trust that their parents are going to provide food for them and a roof over their head and clothing on their backs. All these things they just trust. They, they expect and trust their parents to take care of them. Well, our Heavenly Father is, is a better parent than any of us ever could hope to be. But we are to look to him like our Heavenly Father. There's a reason Jesus brings that up so many times in the Sermon on the Mount. Your Father in Heaven, your Father in Heaven, your Father in Heaven. That's what we are to look to Him as in childlike faith. The Kingdom of God, it's not something you and I can earn our way into. We can't pay for admission to get into it. It's no accident, I think, that the very next text that we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week in Mark's Gospel in chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, is the account of the man often called the rich young ruler. These two accounts are next to each other, I believe, for very good and obvious reasons. What did the rich young ruler think he could do to get, in the, to get entry into the kingdom of heaven? What good thing must I do? Good, great, you know, good teacher, you know, what, what must I do to, to get into the kingdom of heaven to inherit it? He thought he could earn his way in. In fact, he thought he deserved his way in. He came in front of Jesus in front of the whole group. What did he expect to have happen? I think he expected Jesus to say, Son, you're already in. You're good to go. Look how righteous you are. You came in front of all these people unashamed. But what happened? That, that man had deceived himself. What did Jesus do? He did the one thing. I won't preach it ahead of time. But what, what did Jesus tell him? Jesus would have failed our evangelism classes. Because Jesus didn't say, Just believe, you know, receive. He said, You know the commandments. Oh, Jesus, stop, stop, stop. Don't start quoting commandments. You know the commandments do this and this and this. And what did the guy say? Did he have any self-knowledge enough to go, oh, broken that one. He said, all these I have kept since my youth. I've been doing that since I was yay high to a grasshopper. Since I was not much older than those little babies you were just holding. I've been doing those all this time. What else you got for me? And it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, hey, one more thing. You know, sell everything you have. Oh, wait. Uh, anything but that. You have anything else I could do than sell my stuff, right, and give to those who don't have? He thought he'd already kept all of Christ's commandments. He refused to accept the kingdom of God as a gift. And so he never entered in at all. 
He didn't love God and love his neighbor. He loved his stuff. He loved, he went away sad, it says. He went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. Bad bargain. Terrible bargain. He could have had the kingdom of God, all things, and yet his, his earthly riches that weren't going to go with him were the thing that he kept a hold of. Ironic, he thought he could bargain his way in, but at the end of the day, he loved possessions more than his own soul. Children don't think that way. Children know how to receive gifts and how to enter the kingdom of God, sometimes better than we adults do. Well, the last thing we see in our text, it's a short thing in our text, but we see Jesus blessing the little children. Blessing the little children. Verse 16, Mark says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. He took them in his arms. He picked them up. He held them. Even you could, you could practically say he hugged them. He embraced them in his arms, blessed them, and laid hands on them. He took the time for the little ones. As much of a hurry as he may have seemed to be in, he took his time for them. He took them up in his arms. He held them. He blessed them. He laid his hands on them. You know, as this, the song, again, that Mary played, Jesus loves the little children. We shouldn't be uh, doubting that one, one bit. We should have good hope and confident expectation, not, pre- not presumption, but confident expectation and hope in Christ's willingness to bless our little ones. And so we should use every means at our disposal to, in a sense, to carry them like these parents did, carry the kids to Jesus. We should pray for them, lift them up to Christ in prayer. I'm sure you do. Your kids, your grandkids, nieces, nephews, all these kids. Bring them to be baptized. Bring them to the house of the Lord every Lord's Day. Bring them where they're going to hear the word of God. They, they pick up more than we think they do, even from a young age. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Teach them the word of God and the gospel. 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul there says that the children of believers, even of just one believing parent, are what? It's kind of a shocking word if you're not used to it. He says they're holy. Even if one parent is a believer in Christ... Their children are holy. What does holy mean? Set apart, special, set aside for God. In other words, there's a sense in which God says, that one's mine. That one's mine because he's yours and you're mine, in a sense. In other words, he doesn't view them as nothing but little heathen in his sight. And so we shouldn't either. So let us bring our kids, our children, even at the youngest age, to, to Jesus, trusting in his willingness to hold them, in his arms and bless them. May we we also emulate the faith of those little children and so receive and enter the kingdom of God ourselves as well. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short text and we thank you that, that it has so much, as short as it is, to teach us. We pray that you would forgive us for our shortcomings, which are many. We probably can't even begin to count them. The ways that we have unintentionally and even unknowingly hindered our children from coming to you And we ask that you would forgive us for these things, things, cleanse our hearts from unrighteousness, and uh, that you you would renew our minds about these things, transform our lives by them. Help us to be seeking to make, to bring kids, our kids, our friends' kids, children in general to, to you. Help us to lift them up in prayer to you. Help us to seek to teach them the gospel that they might grow up, uh, never knowing a day when they didn't know you. 
that they might have that testimony of, of knowing your love and loving you from a very young, from the youngest age that they can remember. We pray that you would raise up this next generation and generations after that, that you would bless them and bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ from the youngest age, that they might go forth and be better than us and go further than us in glorifying Christ and sharing the gospel to a dying world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.